as we ended the year that talked about the nature of faith, and now we want to talk for a few times at the beginning of this year about the focus of our faith. Where is faith to be focused? And that has been the nature of the historic use of creeds, and in particular, most of us are familiar with the Apostles' Creed. Now, I became a Christian at about age 22, back about 1972. Now, at that point in time, I was dealing with a number of people that were not in the Presbyterian Church, and they were fundamentalists. Some of them were Pentecostal, and one of the things that they did not care for about the Presbyterian Church and uh, some others was the use of the Apostles' Creed. And so many of them had a phrase that went something like this. My creed is simply, what do you think? Jesus. That's all the creed I need. Well, I would want to say to you, that's not what Jesus would say. <laughs> And so that's, with that in mind, let's think about what is a creed, and then let's get to what Jesus would say. For most of us, when we think of the Apostles' Creed, we tend to think of it as a statement. We tend to think of it as a statement that goes back on antiquity, and that many people want to claim that that creed itself owes its origin to the apostles directly. And there's a whole mythological story that I'll share with you in the weeks to come about how uh, various ones of the apostles are supposed to have contributed to the, what we call the Apostles' Creed. It's strictly a myth. <laughs> but the, the, the content of the creed absolutely goes back to the teaching of the apostles. For them, it wasn't a statement. For them, it was a creed. Now, what does, when we take the word, Latin word credo, what does that word mean? Any of you all from Lanier that had Latin, remember any of that? I believe. That's credo. I believe. So we call it the Apostles' Credo. It was a personal statement, and when we today stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed, it should be for us a personal statement, but it's always, almost always, done in a corporate setting. And that's the way we typically, you know, recite it. Now, today... Uh, oh, for the last 25, maybe 30 years, there's been an enormous amount of focus in Christian discipleship over the aspect of personal accountability. So for a number of reasons, people are wanting to find somebody that is a fellow Christian that they can, as it were, be held accountable to or that they can hold accountable 
to walk as Christian. In reality, what we're doing when we stand and repeat corporately the Apostles' Creed is that we are doing that. I am giving my accountability to you. This is what I believe. You are giving your accountability to me and others that are in the room. This is what you profess you believe. So it's, it's more than just a statement, but it is that. It's personal. It's corporate. It's a commitment. You know, there are a lot of things that a lot of people believe. There's just, you know, if you, how many of you have given up on some of the things that your mama believed? You know, there was a lot of those kind of things that you said, well, I know that she believed that, but, well, okay. And probably that's going to happen to us. Our kids are going to think that way about some of the things that we believe. But it is a commitment. I believe that's what I'm committed to. When we say something like that, I believe, it becomes to a great extent a self-definition. Here is a person who believes, and this is what that person believes. And we need to think along these lines when we think of the creed. Again, people in the culture will say to you, it's good, I'm glad it works for you. You believe that, I believe something else. It's a very strong statement when we, with other people in other churches, corporately agree that we believe the things that are expressed in the Apostles' Creed. It sets us apart. There was a time in which not using the Apostles' Creed sounded very contemporary and very countercultural. Today, to use the Apostles' Creed is going to sound very contemporary and very countercultural because much of the church has abandoned the use of the Apostles' Creed. So it is very, very much a contemporary statement for us. Now, lest you think it's something extra-biblical, that would be the furthest thing from the truth. The Old Testament is filled with creedal statements. For the Jew, the believing Jew, the most salient expression of their faith was found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and then it went on to say, and these things you shall pass on to your children when you rise up and when you lie down, when you sit to eat, and when you're in the way. In other words, you'll teach this in every aspect of a child's life, that this is what you believe. Again, if you go further, by the way, that creed becomes for Jesus a creed. Remember when they tested him? 
Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all? Well, that's what he quoted. He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4. In the Old Testament, there were many creedal statements, some of them you're aware of. What did Joshua say? What did Joshua say? As for me, we will. That's a creedal statement. How about Ruth? Here's a woman. Naomi says, go back. What's Ruth say? Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Let it be done unto me, and worse, if even death separates you from me. That's a creedal statement. And there's an abundance of them all through the New Testament as well. So we're going to look at this, the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed begins, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now let's look at this from Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we've just finished with the baptism of Jesus. You remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, as he came up out of the water, two things happened. One, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and was going to be the spirit that led him through a life of ministry. He was anointed with the spirit beyond measure to minister. The other thing is he heard a voice from heaven. God said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now... At that point, Jesus enters into his public ministry, and in chapter 4 we read, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But... He, Jesus, answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone." Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him, you shall only serve him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. What is Jesus saying to us in this over and over again? What's he saying to Satan? What are we to learn from this? Jesus is saying, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And so when we look to Jesus himself, the very things that the creed opens with are the very depths of the commitment of the personal life of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's what we want to see as we, as we begin to look at this. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to face Satan. He is on the offensive. He's not wandering around waiting for Satan to come. The Spirit leads him into this confrontation. He is being led into this confirmation in order that he might bind the strong man to defeat Satan. And he is in the process of establishing his father's truth as being true truth in the world of his day and our day. And so when we look at this work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we see that he is being put in a, in a contest. Will he uh, submit to Satan or will he live according to his creed that he is the son of his heavenly father? Well, the first thing that we see happen is that Satan comes to him and questions him and says, if you are the son of God. Now, the question is becomes a problem because just immediately prior to this, God the Father has said to him, you are my son. That's the truth. And Jesus knows that that's the truth. Satan is tempting him on whether there is truth in what God said. Notice the similarity there between what Satan said to Eve and what is said to Jesus. Notice, too, that the temptation to Eve was over something to eat, and the temptation here to Jesus has regards to something to eat as well. If God is your father, Jesus, you are very hungry. In fact, you are right at the tipping point of hunger. You are able to sustain yourself right now, but if things go much further, you're going to be in a position where you won't be able to come back. You are very hungry. Look at all of these stones. Now, I know you all think in many ways I'm nuts. I want to confirm it to you again. Uh, when I made my trip to Israel, I was no normal camper on the trip. Wherever I went, I would reach down and pick up a stone. And in my closet, in my little office at home, I have a shoebox of stones from Israel. Now, if you go to Israel, one of the common things that you're going to see is stones. They're everywhere. You'll never have a question, where did they get these stones to pick up to stone Jesus or something like that? They're everywhere. So here are these abundance of stones. Satan suggests to him, you could have a veritable feast if you would change these stones into loaves of bread. That's the temptation. 
Now, here's the question. This is a, a satanic test of Jesus' life concerning his hunger and his desperate need. What is this analogous to? Well, all three of these tests and Jesus' response to them can be found as finding their origin of response in the ver verses that are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 7, and 8. All of Jesus' responses come out of there. And in this case, where Jesus responds to Satan about man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, what Jesus is saying is basically a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where Moses is telling the people that God led you, the people of Israel, out into the wilderness in order that you would be hungry in order to see whether you would follow the ways of God or no. So God purposefully led Israel into the wilderness to test them through hunger. What is happening with Jesus? He is being led into the wilderness in order that he would be tested in this regards. Will he make God his God or will he, like the other sons of Israel, fall? That's where he's at. So when Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, he's saying basically this, my life is not at an end. In fact, this is just the beginning of my life. And God has led me to be in the wilderness. He has not led me to bring bread. He has not led me to find bread. And therefore, I know, being led by the Spirit, I'm exactly where the Father wants me to be. And I have to be patient, and I have to be trusting, and I have to wait on his word to come to me. So, we see here that, that this test by Satan does not work with Jesus. What is Jesus saying? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe that. Now, the problem with us is we believe a lot of things. And unfortunately, the things that we really, really ought to believe, we only believe them. Maybe we just merely believe them to be true. But we're not believing them like Jesus is believing them here. And that's really the challenge for us when we look at the Apostles' Creed. Will we come to a point where we say, I am a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, and I believe that God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, is my God, and I'm going to do what he wants me to do. That's really where we're challenged when we look at the creed here. Um, my wife's got a new boyfriend. 
My wife goes through the year with many boyfriends. Now, what do you think? My wife's new boyfriend's got a beard to about here. What's his name? Anybody know? Happy, happy, happy. Anybody know? What's his name? Phil Robertson, Duck Dynasty. His new book, Happy, Happy, Happy. She's read that. She insists, I've got to read it. She's reading the book by Phil Robertson's son and his daughter. I'm sure she's going to insist that I read that one when I'm done. But here's the thing about Phil Robertson. He doesn't much care. What, what's the name of the broadcasting group that does his show? A and e. He doesn't much care. <laughs> you know what he cares for? I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. That's what I'm committed to. Any doubts? Now, people that come to meet him don't have any doubts. You hear his stories, and you just keep coming back. This God the Father took over original jurisdiction in this man's life some years ago and gave him a whole new life. And now, well, he isn't going back. Look at our buddy Tim Tebow. What's Tim's biggest problem? You know what Tim's biggest problem is? It's not that he's not can't get rid of the ball fast enough. That's not his problem. His problem is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's where the rub is. Were there many examples of this? What is it that we believe? Do we really believe what we say we believe? Believe it enough to let life run its course as we seek to live this life by faith in the manner in which Jesus does here. Well, let's look at the second temptation. The second temptation comes, and the devil takes him to a place called the Holy City, this is probably what we should understand to be a vision. And he puts him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he again questions if you're the son of God, and then he quotes Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their feet they will bear you up, lest you bear your, strike your foot against the stone. Now, I like that psalm. I use that psalm a lot. One day I went to an old man's home, and he was in bed, declining. Uh, he lived in Milledgeville, but he actually was from Macon. And um, it was his 91st birthday. So I remember reading that psalm to him. I read that psalm to a lot of older people. It's a blessing. Now, the idea is that at the end of the psalm, that the person who has a long-term patient faith in God in the small things, in the big things, in the common things, in the traumatic things, just lives a long life of faith that that person is going to be blessed by God in these words that Satan quotes as a demonstration how God has taken care of them all throughout their life. 
Satan comes and wants to use these words as a provocation to Jesus that here you are in the temple. The temple is the one place on earth where we would expect God's presence to be with power. You claim to be God's son. You demonstrate it by throwing yourself down and you'll see whether you're God's son or not because it's said of God's son that the angels are going to bear him up. Jesus, are you a coward? Are you willing to do this in order to prove that God's really your father? Are you willing to show everybody this, demonstrate it? Now, again, growing up in the time that I grew up as a Christian, I've seen that kind of a challenge thrown to Christians over and over again to put God to the test. Dear people of God, we don't put God to the test. We trust God. We don't put him to the test. And so Jesus comes back, and again, he quotes from, in this case, again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says to, to Satan, again, it is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You don't do this. Um, some of you women may want to write down the name Darlene Diebler Rose or maybe the book that she wrote a number of years ago called Evidence Not Seen. Wonderful book, still in print. But simply Darlene... At 21, a missionary in New Guinea was taken captive by the Japanese, put into a type of concentration camp with other women, and she was put through the tests from the very beginning of World War II to the very end of World War II, and there she was as a POW of the Japanese, and she became the camp commander, although she was one of the youngest mature women in this camp of hundreds of women. But what she found to be true is that God was there. God was there for her over and over and over again. She said one day the Americans finally flew over, and they were so excited to see the star on the wings of the airplane, they just were ecstatic. But the next thing that they saw was little eggs dropping from the starred planes, and they realized they were bombs. And one of the bombs lit up the barracks where she was staying, and she realized that there was something in that barracks that she had borrowed that was valuable to another one of the internees in that camp. And so she left the safety of her foxhole and she ran into this burning building. She got this possession of this other person and she ran back. And when she got back, a bomb had fallen right in the foxhole where she had been. And this kind of a situation happened to her over and over and over again. And she said all of this was an evidence. You couldn't see it, 
But anybody that had faith knew what it meant. It was God the Father was taking care of her. I believe in God the Father Almighty, and I believe in him. It's a quiet thing. It's a continual thing. It doesn't need to be tested. Now, the last thing that we see here, we see in this passage of Scripture, is that Satan comes to Jesus in just in the rawest way possible, says to Jesus, you know, here, everything that is promised to you, I show it to you. It's been given to me. I will give it to you if you just bow down and worship me. It seems like a small thing. It seems like a small thing to give our worship to other things, but it's a huge thing. It's the beginning of the kind of a infiltration into our lives that once given a, a foothold can become a stronghold. And we have to watch letting these little things come in. Just think of what it says in Psalm 2 of Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I promise to give you all the nations. That was the promise God the Father gave to him. But Jesus has to stay faithful to God the Father, not listen to a quick, short way of getting to the goal or to the end by just doing something that seems small but yet is large. Right now, if you turn on your local radio station, there's an ad, and it's saying this, I'll teach you how to flip houses in Macon, Georgia. Not only will I teach you how to make a lot of money flipping houses in Macon, Georgia, you can do it with somebody else's money. Now, just really. Just really. I mean, hello, something smells like a rat. You know, every day on television, it says this, stay rich. It's not, at least they've gotten away from promising you'll be rich. You won't be rich. But you may stay rich if you'll just buy gold and silver. Really? Really? <laughs> That's the way it works, huh? Do you be we don't believe these things. It was a similar type thing. But what's Jesus say? I believe in God the Father Almighty, and you worship him, and you worship him alone. Now, when Jesus leaves us and Satan leaves him, God takes care of him. But what begins to happen, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the people come, and what do they want to do? Satan wants to use them to trip Jesus up. Don't be discouraged if I fail you, okay? I will not be discouraged if you fail the church. That sounds surprising? 
But remember that Peter said this, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, well, my Father in heaven revealed that to you. But I've got to go to Jerusalem. I have to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And I have to be crucified. And on the third day I'll raise from the dead. What did, what did Peter say? Lord, this shouldn't happen to you. Let's come over here and talk about this. We don't want to let that out. Let's not talk about that. And what does Jesus say when Satan has infiltrated his chief apostle? Get behind me, Satan. I may fail you. The Father will never fail you. Jesus will never fail you. You may fail us, but the Father's not going to fail you. He's not going to fail me. Remember when Peter denied? What did Jesus say before it even happened? When you are recovered, go and strengthen your brethren. We fail. God the Father never fails. Jesus never fails. What are we called to do? We're called to have a simple, straightforward faith in everything that God reveals about himself in the scripture. And we live that way. It's not nothing explosive, nothing dynamic, nothing that is just sensational. But it's like Jesus here. He knew his father. He knew that he was the son. We know the father. We know that we're daughters and we know that we're sons. And we know that all things God's going to use. He's going to wrap all of this stuff up. The one who created heaven and earth is not going to let heaven or earth keep us from being a part of his kingdom. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth, For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. That's where it's going to end up. Let's pray. Bless us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we worship you all the days of our life. And we pray that you would use us in the testimony that we bear, to bear fruit in the salvation of others around us. We make this prayer in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen.